Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a historical romance podcast that's too pragmatic to take this charming man seriously. I'm Beth, and I'm on Book Talk under the name Beth Heyman Reads. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance Substack The Loose Cravat, a romance book collector and book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks. I'm Emma, a law librarian writing about justice and romance at the Substack Restorative Romance. Today, we'll be talking about Indigo by Beverly Jenkins. In an interview for the Writer's Digest in 2021, Jenkins said, I think women in general, especially women of color, have had to be strong in order to deal with the times and what they faced, and the lemons that America has given people of color to try and make it as palatable a batch of lemonade as they could. I don't do weak women, and I don't think my readers want to read about weak women. I think people who have not experienced romance in the last 15, 20 years would be very surprised at the feminism and the models that these women portray. Hester definitely fits this mold. Growing up working on an indigo plantation, Hester's aunt hires people to find her lost niece. She now lives in Whitaker, Michigan, and is part of the Underground Railroad. Her life changes forever when an injured man, known as the Black Daniel, hides out in her home while he recovers. Jenkins leans heavily on the historical part of historical romance and what she calls edutainment. Her first novel, Night Song, came out in 1994 and featured a bibliography of sources. Jenkins explores a history and setting in ways few authors currently are. She's written 18th and 19th century stories set in various cities and states in America. Jenkins doesn't shy away from the slavery, racism, and sexism prevalent in the past and weaves together stories that acknowledge these systems while still giving her characters a happily ever after. Her swoon-worthy romances often feature a strong, pragmatic woman and an equally strong man who wants to take care of her. In a world full of Regency romances featuring the ton, Jenkins tells stories about characters of all classes and backgrounds. Okay, so what was your first Beverly Jenkins you read? So I read Forbidden for our Taxonomy of Rakes episode. Um, so this is my second one. Uh, yeah, I don't remember what my first Beverly Jenkins book was. I think it might have been Topaz, which is also my favorite Beverly Jenkins. So I don't have any way to connect those two except for that is my first <laughs> and still my favorite. I feel like sometimes they just go by covers or like, I think I read Night Nighthawk first, but I don't know why I picked it up or like I love what, Nighthawk. what brought it into my orbit. Yeah, it just sounded like a really interesting plot. So um, yeah. I think that's what compelled me to pick it up. Yeah, Nighthawk has some of like my favorite side characters. I remember that really well. Um, also Vivid, too. I yeah. Just, it's just kind of like a thing that comes up a lot. But um, It was in Nighthawk I learned that the reason Wyoming was like the first to give women the vote is because they were trying to entice women to move to that state because they needed, oh. <laughs> needed more women there. <laughs> oh. uh, so yeah, fun fact for our listeners. We had a lot of fun reading this book. So to get everyone on the same page, I will do a semi-quick plot summary. Hester's house is a station on the Underground Railroad for people seeking freedom from slavery. Set in Michigan, many people stop at Hester's house before going all the way to Canada. Like I mentioned, our story starts when Hester takes in the notorious conductor known as the Black Daniel. His injuries need time to mend, and Hester's neighbor, B patches him up. Hester takes care of him for the next week, a little ruffled by his curt manner. 
The Black Daniel notices Hester's hands have been dyed indigo. He realizes she likely had been enslaved working on one of the few remaining indigo plantations on the sea islands of South Carolina. Slave catchers interrupt a meeting of the ladies' abolition circle at Hester's house. We meet Mr. Shu, a truly despicable man, as he questions the whereabouts of the Black Daniel. He accuses Hester of not owning the land she actually owns, then mocks her explanation of how her great-grandfather had received the land as payment for fighting in the War of Independence. He searches the house, but can't find anything since the house has been designed for hiding people. The next day, Hester speaks with the Black Daniel and discovers his real name, Galen. They spar, and Hester even says at one point, I would love to debate the merits of your argument, but there are none, so I will take my leave. They talk some more, where Hester shares her Aunt Catherine, who raised her, had passed away, and her fiancé Foster is in England until the spring. They don't love each other, but still plan on marrying. Hester's parents died when she was a small child. Her father sold himself into slavery to be with her mother. Her Aunt Catherine spent many years looking for Hester, and her people rescued her from the indigo plantation when she was nine. Galen suspects a traitor in their midst, but Hester says she trusts everyone in Whitaker. Galen shares that six men had ambushed him when he was traveling with a family escaping from Georgia. To save everyone, he reveals his identity, allowing time for the family to escape. Galen's saved by some luck, since the Wesleyites, a kind of chaotic force in the Underground Railroad, rescue him. They get closer, and Hester shows him all the hidden panels in the house that serve as either escapes or places to hide. I should also make a note here about the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. This law required the government to help slave owners control enslaved people and denied that African Americans were actual U.S. citizens. This law denied a fugitive enslaved person the right to testify for themselves and a trial by jury. The law also penalized anyone who assisted or harbored an escaped enslaved person. Federal marshals who refused to comply with enforcing the law could be fined $1,000. Special commissions had concurrent jurisdiction with U.S. courts enforcing this act and were so widely corrupt. Of the 343 people who appeared before them, 332 were forced back into slavery. Northern states prohibited officials from returning enslaved people to the South. Hester and Galen get physically closer as well as relating more of their respective histories. Hester discloses where her free papers are and that the sheriff has a copy as well. They go to the river, and Galen convinces Hester to make mud pies with him. After they get home, he walks in on her bathing, and they make out. After they go to sleep, Galen enters her room with another man, Raymond, to tell her goodbye, and that when they meet again, she needs to pretend they've never met. Six months pass, and Hester sells some land to a man named Andre on behalf of his employer, who is Galen. Hester's fiancé, Foster, returns, and she picks him up at the train station, only to discover he's gotten married. He introduces his wife, Janine, and while Hester is humiliated, she's kind to Janine. After meeting Janine, she wonders what Janine and Foster talk about, since Janine seems uninterested in philosophy and politics, things Foster cares about. On the way home, they get stuck, and Galen rescues them. He takes them home and promises to pick up Hester's wagon and mule and have them brought to her the following day. All four of them go out for dinner, and afterwards Galen says he's staying in town. Hester really likes him, but worries he'll grow bored of her and his family will look down on her since they're wealthy and she's not. Hester shows up at Galen's house at night by his invitation. She meets John Brown and some other abolitionists and Galen makes her promise if she ever needs help to reach out to him or any of the other men. They make out some more. Galen acknowledges to his servant, who's more like a mom, that Hester has him turned inside out. 
He heads out to Detroit to meet with family and his terrible grandmother, who treats everyone like dirt. Everyone in the family assumes Galen visits a mistress when he disappears from April to October. No one knows he's the Black Daniel, and that he's aiding people's escape from slavery. Galen and Hester run into each other in Detroit. He proposes to her in a carriage, and she kind of brushes it off. Later, Hester reflects on how she doesn't want to be at the mercy of love the way her father was. Besides, it's here she discovers how wealthy Galen is. Like, how truly wealthy he is. After returning home, Galen throws a party for everyone in Whitaker. Everyone notices how Galen stares at Hester, and he comes to her house afterwards. They make out again, and he proposes again, and she says no. There's just a lot of making out. <laughs> um, a couple, the Blackburns, are captured on their way north. Shu, the slave catcher, is headed back into town to take them south. Hester and others make plans that involves getting them out of jail, and Hester staying in jail in Mrs. Blackburn's place. After the sheriff discovers Hester, he says she'll need a bond to get out. Plot happens, and Galen offers up money for Hester's bond. Hester stays the night. The next day, they stop by Foster's place for something and discover B's son, Lemuel, having sex with Janine. Janine threatens to smear Hester's reputation, and Hester says she won't tell Foster. Galen assures her that Foster will find her out eventually. That night, Hester shows up at Galen's house, and they have sex. Galen says she has to marry him now, and she says his family will never accept her. Galen accuses her of being afraid. She goes home in the morning to find Foster waiting for her. He says Janine said she discovered Hester and Galen fornicating in the schoolhouse. More rumors swirl, and Galen basically strong-arms Hester into marrying him when they, when they go to church that Sunday. He spoils her a lot with clothes and nice stuff. They kind of live their marriage for many pages. Galen leaves to help some people who need to escape. Hester learns more about Galen's family history and how his grandmother disapproved of his mother marrying a darker-skinned man. His grandmother dies, so they go to Detroit for the funeral. Hester meets Jeanette, Galen's intended. She's kind to Hester, who says she and Galen would have never suited and they were more like siblings. They return home after the funeral. She threatens Hester and steals her free papers and trashes her house. Everyone agrees no one should leave Hester unaccompanied. B confesses to being the traitor in the community by trading information about her neighbors to find out the whereabouts of her children who were still enslaved. Janine and Foster find Hester one day to tell her Galen's been arrested, so Hester and Raymond split up. Hester hops into a carriage with Janine and Foster when Janine points a gun at Hester. She relates how she never loved Foster and used him to get to Lemuel, who she really loved. She's promised her more money once she's turned in Hester. Foster didn't know any of this. Shu catches up to them, gives Janine barely any of the money he promised her, and then kidnaps Hester. Of course, Galen rescues her, and they go home where Galen continues to spoil her, presumably for the rest of her life. <laughs> Sorry, that last, last paragraph just, like, drops off abruptly, but I think that's kind of how it was in the book, right? They just, he rescues her, and they, they go home. I the, the feel like the ending is really about the, the John Brown um Harper's Ferry, like that's oh, sort of yeah, like that. another, the other ending. Yeah, um, is that like that's that's the thing that's sort of like coming down the pipeline is that the war has not started yet, but like that's the where things are going. Right, right. So a prominent theme in Indigo is freedom. Hester's father gives up freedom to be with Hester's mother since she's enslaved. Hester's aunt Catherine spends many years trying to find Hester, and after she's found and has her papers, there's still the threat you could be kidnapped into slavery again. In what ways does Jenkins discuss freedom, or what did you think of this theme? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's interesting that 
I, I think the way that Hester and Galen both talk about marriage and freedom is something that like we see in lots of historical romance, but now there's in this novel because of Hester's like former enslaved status, there's like a lot more weight going on in the discussions. I think people often use like these metaphors to talk about like marriage being a prison, marriage being enslavement is sort of like almost uh, recklessly or like without a lot of weight to them attached in like Regency uh, books of like white characters set in England. But Hester really sees marriage as a way like of like as this like reinforcement of the circumstances that ha- like led to her enslavement because her father gives up his freedom to be with her mother. So she's like, I don't want to marry for love because I see how that like plays out in this like dangerous world that I live in. Mm-hmm. So it's you know, on, like one level, it's something that we see in a lot of historicals, but uh, because of the context of the setting and also the characters like character history, there's this other like sort of historical context um, and and layers to how it it manifests like for Hester and for Galen, because it also manifests differently for them because Hester has the threat of being re-enslaved. Well, that's never really a threat for, for Galen um, because of his, his like lighter skin and his family background. I think it's interesting too, as since we're referencing like English historical novels and like Regency historical novels, there's a part in the book where, Galen says to Hester, like, aren't you worried that I'm going to, like, compromise your reputation? And she's like, I don't have that luxury to, like, worry about being compromised because I'm trying to, like, ferry people through here so they can make it to freedom. So I can't, like, I don't have time to worry about that stuff, basically. So I thought that was... She's very concerned with what people know about her, but that, like, her her status as a virgin is, like, bottom of the barrel. Yes. Like, like, she's keeping a much bigger secret of like information that about her about her life it feels like you could kind of go any direction with this question because like every single character kind of like every single facet of everyone's lives is kind of uh, around this like one point of like remaining free being free like I, I it's kind of just like baked into the book you know if that makes sense yeah no for sure uh in the author's note beverly jenkins she kind of cites like her inspiration for this novel So this is Jenkins talking. The two letters in the Indigo prologue are products of my own imagination. So at the beginning of the book, this is just me talking, um, we see a couple of, uh, we see some letters from Hester's father to Catherine, and he's just like relating how he fell in love with this woman and to please go look for his daughter because they did end up getting separated. So back to Jenkins. But the account of a free man selling himself into slavery for love is based upon fact. So this like account um, from, I think it's like a, like another person relating someone else he knew. So he says, I knew a man named Wyatt who was free. He wanted to marry a slave girl named Carrie, and he gave himself to Carrie's master to marry her. He was crazy to do that. That love is an awful thing, I tell you. I don't think I would give my freedom away to marry anybody. So Jenkins says she found this quote from a former slave can be found in the book Bullwhip Days. And then she just talks about how she <laughs> didn't feel like it would be a good story for like the feel good arena of mainstream romance to talk about a story of White and Carrie, but he, she had the thought, what if this couple had a daughter and what if she was somehow able to escape slavery? So I really liked this inspiration. And it's, it seems very Jenkins, who's very, uh, does a lot of research. <laughs> you can, I mentioned that she has a, had a bibliography at the beginning of Night Song, like the very first book she ever published, but she has them in like all her books. Like if you look at the end of Indigo, that also has a bibliography. 
I that one quote from uh, Bullwhip Days that love is an awful thing. Like that's another yeah. thing that like Hester says later. Like love must be a terrible thing, which is like most the most heartbreaking thing I think from both of the quotes is just kind of like it's like this like big aspirational thing to find love and to find romantic love. It's like kind of like what so much media is about striving for. But like the the other the other hand of that is like how how that can be used to make you suffer more. Yeah, I really feel for Hester. I feel like the way she's approached life so far, again, she's a very practical person. makes a lot of sense that she's going to marry someone like Foster because she wants to play it safe. And also, I don't think there's a lot of men in the area. So there's just like a couple reasons I'm sure she's factoring into why it's a good bet. But yeah, I don't think she ever really counted on actually falling in love. And I think it's... Considering her personal history, it comes up in the book, like I mentioned before, Galen says, I think you're afraid of like being in love, but I would be too. Like the the sort of normal romance novel thing of like afraid to take to take a leap of faith, like that's the thing that comes up in all these romance novels of like no matter what the stakes are. Yeah. But then with Hester, there's this added layer which like she she's worried about like letting her guard down because she might be sent back to slavery. And so that that quote, like that love is an awful thing, that could be in any romance novel, but within this context, there's like very specific like consequences that aren't always there for all of our characters. Yeah, for sure. I did want to talk about class structure. If you read a lot of historical romances, many of them are set during the Regency period in England. There, the class structure is a lot more organized and named, especially among the aristocracy. Here in an American novel, it's not as obvious, and it stems more from wealth. Plus, with the added element of race and the one-drop rule, Hester and Galen have elements of racism and colorism to contend with as well. The disparity in class between Galen and Hester is what prevents her from saying yes to his marriage proposal for much of the book. So when considering the historical romance novel and the usual conventions, how does class affect our characters in an American setting? I mean, I'm that reader who like reads a lot of historical romances, like only set in England. So a lot of I I do not read a lot of books set in America. And um, Jenkins is probably even just having read two Jenkins, I've read more American set books from her than I have any other author. But I thought about this a lot in comparison with Forbidden, um, the other Jenkins that I've read, mostly because Forbidden has a lot more white characters in the book because it has to deal with the hero passing, and so he's in a white community while the heroine is in a black community. And so in this book, we deal with a, a lot more like intercommunity rules because so many of the characters are black. And so we're dealing with like the class elements across sort of the black community. And so Galen's family being wealthier and like looking down on Hester and the colorism that's going on there. But I thought it was interesting how often the, the biases sort of went both ways and how Hester talks about her own biases and how therefore a form of protection for her. Um, that she has some sort of skepticism of people who have the passing as an option because of the work she does on the Underground Railroad. She worries about them being traitors and that she understands like a lack of trust that might go um, even within this community. And she also worries about Galen's sort of waning interest based on his wealth. And so we see sort of biases as sort of like judgment and um, this, the, the judgment that the the sort of more powerful people have on Hester, but then also how biases work for class going the other way, and it can be serve as a protection for the more like subjugated members of the community. Yeah, so I guess I have a few thoughts about this class in this book and in others, particularly in comparing the class structure in this book to a Regency. 
Um, so yeah, regencies have become so married to the aristocracy, which are an elite class that you get sort of really bogged down on who outranks who, but it's a very small fraction of the population of England. And then as Emma noted in our Unmasked by the Marquis episode, we don't get a lot of depictions in romance of the actual racial makeup of Regency England. So I think of that as more of like something that's like missing from those books. And Regencies are also dominant now and have been always been very popular, but in 1996, when Indigo was first published, there was a lot more variety in the popular settings of historical romance. So you were getting medieval, you were getting Westerns, you were getting books set in the American South pre-Civil War or among the conflict of the Civil War, but you were getting them from white women who were at worst actively racist and at best ambivalent about their depictions, which is also racism. So 1972's The Flame and the Flower by Kathleen Widowis is partially set on a plantation. Uh, And in the 1980s, Heather Graham, under the pen name Shannon Drake, released Tomorrow of the Glory, which has a step back of Graham and her husband posing in front of a Confederate flag. In the early 1990s, Lisa Kleypas wrote her Valoran series, where the main characters were like benevolent plantation owners. Uh, So I think it's really important to note that Jenkins was not just groundbreaking for having black main characters in historical romance, but encountering these like racist narratives in romantic fiction. But as far as class goes in Indigo, it seems like uh, it's kind of both wealth and proximity to whiteness, which I, I actually don't think is really that far off from Regency England. I think that we're just kind of like getting cordoned off into this one part and told not to think too much about it. Like, kind yeah. of like don't think too much about like why Glasgow is merchant city. Like, you know what I mean? Like, don't don't think too much about that. Uh, But I think it kind of works the same there. It's kind of the same. It works in Australia on and on. When Hester was enslaved as a child, she not only held no wealth, but was considered property. And then as an adult, she's unable to divorce herself from that history because her hands kind of give her away. Uh, Whereas Galen can move through the world more easily because of what his wealth and his like uh, lighter skin tone affords him. But when his horrible grandmother dies, uh, none of this proximity to whiteness that she held dear came through. So she's not allowed to be buried in a white cemetery. So there's kind of like uh, that no matter how wealthy she is, that's still kind of like a different, different stratifier. I just find class is much more slippery concept in America But it is also kind of slippery in the Regency era as well. Like, people are moving up and down the ladders and they try and be, like, to the new tradespeople who are, like, moving up because of money. They want to be like, well, you're not, like, the old, old wealth like us, so therefore you can't join our very exclusive club. But it's kind of like a new club in America. In this book, there's some of the, like, that parallel, like, in, like, so in English Regencies, we have, like, the aristocracy and then who has the money. It's like, are you from an old family or do you have money? And those are two yeah. separate questions. In this book, it seems to work like who, who has money and who has like proximity to whiteness privilege. And they're aligned for Galen's family, but they're not always going to be aligned necessarily. Yeah. And that's, it's like, but you have to have like sort of these both factors, um, but they're, they move separately from each other, but also are intersected. Like obviously you have with your proximity to whiteness, you're able to gain more money, just like proximity or a, a, being a member of the aristocracy you're able to gain more money, but it's not a guarantee. So like this has that sort of parallel structure, unlike some, I imagine, like uh, American romances that maybe don't address race or again, like sort of have like a blinders to racial elements. Yes. Yes, I agree. So instead of having a clear cut point of view, Jenkins moves between Hester's and Galen's thoughts within a chapter, even alternating paragraphs. 
Although the majority of the narrative, I would say, is from Hester's point of view. How did this affect your reading experience? And did you enjoy quickly getting both main characters' point of view on like the same situation? Yes, I, I, I think... Beth, I know, included this question, but I have, like, problems. <laughs> Not that I have problems. I generally have a hard time reading the structure. I'm very beholden to, like, very evenly structured dual POV or, like, very uh, – not even if it's necessarily evenly structured, very, like, clear callouts of dual POV. It's one of the reasons that I like romance. I, I really enjoy that sort of playing within a structure. And so when the structure is sort of moved away from, I sometimes even struggle reading it. But I do like that the, the focus is mainly on Hester with glimpses into Galen's mind because uh, I think it actually serves – the plot because there's these sort of like layers of mystery first with Galen's identity as the Black Daniel which when I first was reading the book I thought was going to take longer to uncover I thought that was going to sort of be the main plot of like who is this man in the house um Hester sort of gains that information pretty quickly and then the question of who's betraying Hester and the community who's working with the slave takers and then finally Galen's like grand gesture to to Hester of like what his like last sort of spoiling of her is also has a little bit of a mystery that means that we need to stick with Hester's mind but I think it speaks to their relationship from the jump based on trust and leaps of faith with each other because they're in this situation where both of them could be very easily criminalized for the work that they're doing. Yeah. That they sort of have to fall into this immediate rapport. Usually those quick switches that happen in a book with an, when an author does that, I sort of, my reaction is like, wait, like, why does the person that I was just with know this? Um, or like, why, why do we immediately have access to that information as the reader? Why are we not being siphoned off from that information? But I think it makes sense when you're reading Hester's point of view that you could sort of jump into Galen's mind because Hester's so observant of Galen so quickly that she kind of knows what Galen is thinking a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And so it's not as quite as jarring. And then also Galen on the other side would be like incredibly interested in what Hester is thinking all the time. So when we switch from him back to her, it also doesn't feel as jarring. It sort of feels like it's going with the plot and the characters. I do feel like Jenkins um, is kind of like what the narrative demands, like whose story is it? That's, I think, why we get more of Hester's point of view. It does feel like a little bit more her story. And I do like when authors do that. Like, we've talked about Anne Mallory before, I think. And if not, we will right now, where she has books. Oftentimes, the split will be like 80% with one character and then 20% with another. And I really like when authors do that because I think the... And this isn't bad, but this is just like the trend now. It's just you kind of get alternating chapters of point of view or like... It's like pretty 50-50 split on like spending time with like the two main characters. I think it's it's interesting when the author will just kind of go with how they think the story should be shaped. Well, because it's set where Hester lives, you kind of have to get that world building from her point of view. Um, so yeah. I think like what you would learn from her would probably be more interesting than what you would learn from Galen's perspective on that but then you do get like kind of the more interesting Galen perspectives which is on Hester uh because like his point of view on Hester is does not match up exactly with how she sees herself and like how she sees like her potential as a love interest um but yeah I did enjoy seeing that um and I thought those moments were really sweet Galen describing Hester is like all time romantic he's he's good at like making her feel Beautiful, but also, like, making the reader feel, like, I guess Jenkins is the one who's actually doing that. Jenkins is making you feel like he's, like, down bad very quickly. Very uh, invested. He's, <laughs> <laughs> he's just like, what is this feeling clenching my heart? Like, <laughs> And Maxie's like, um, hate to break it to you. Sorry, that's like, like his. Oh, no. <laughs> 
I think that is my favorite when it's like, oh no, am I in love? Like, when that character, when a character has that uh, revelation, it gets me every time. So another thought I wanted to touch on is I think Jenkins cleverly subverted readers' expectations about the, like, uninformed, uninterested girl who doesn't talk about politics kind of character. The way Jenkins frames the story, you know that there's a traitor in the midst, and you also know it's highly likely someone's going to try and kidnap Hester again. I honestly thought it was going to be Foster, and then it turned out to be Janine has been playing dumb and used Foster to get back to her actual lover, Lemuel, and get money to go further west. So that did surprise me when she, like, (laughs) pulled out a gun. Um, But yeah, I just wanted to talk about this this kind of character, and if maybe you guys also were surprised. Yeah, so um, the I was surprised by... I guess like how it comes because it comes up twice. Um, there are two different characters who are sort of like not into politics, um, at least women, Janine and also Jeanette um, mentions it, um, which is Galen's like intended. And she's also characterized as not being political, though Jeanette does not have like a, a turncoat moment. But I think um, Hester's reaction to both women sort of being like this is like they have this potential to sort of to read more. I think Hester's a little bit less like graceful about it with Janine because she, she doesn't like Janine. She finds Janine kind of annoying while Jeanette is kind to her. Yeah. But it's like you have this potential at any moment to become someone who's like a political actor. But I think there's like a there are links between Jeanette and Janine, even though we're more sympathetic to Jeanette. Um, she's kinder to Hester. Janine obviously holds Hester at gunpoint. Though I think Janine is also a more sympathetic character than someone that you would expect hold who holds the heroine at, at gunpoint. Um, Hester... By, the, by that point, Hester is showing her a, a lot more grace thinking about ways that their lives could have ended up in similar paths. Where, like, why did Hester end up on the path that she's on? Why, why did Janine end up on the one that she's on? But I think that sort of, like, apolitical, like, uh, lack of action, I think it, it characterizes Hester really as this, like, very active character that she is so deeply involved in politics, both for her, for her work and sort of in her, like, just general life, like, her hidden work on the, on the Underground Railroad but also um, in her, her public life. And yeah, I feel like it's like, who maybe has the luxury of being apolitical? Or like, what are the results if you're in a different class of being apolitical? So Jeanette, I think, also is wealthy. So she can kind of just be okay. But Jean is not wealthy. That's like what is motivating her to, like, in this turncoat moment. And I, I do like that Hester is sympathetic to her. Like, she has that thought, like you mentioned, Emma, like, oh, like, that could have been me. Like, if life had just turned out differently. Anyway, we had talked about this before and we were like, what is the connection here? But I think you just explained it. (laughs) So I want to talk about the Song of Solomon in this book. So in his marriage proposal at the church, Galen quotes chapters four and seven of the Song of Solomon, starting with, thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse, thou hast ravished my heart. Uh, So the Song of Solomon has been cited in other romance novels uh, like Passion by Lisa Valdez. And I think probably because of how it is kind of uniquely erotic in biblical works. Uh, So after Galen's recitation, Hester wonders if, quote, the great African queen of Sheba has been as moved when Solomon spoke those words declaring his love. Uh, So at one point during the poem, the daughters of Jerusalem are told, uh, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases, which is meant as a warning that love comes when it's ready and to force it brings pain. Uh, So I keep thinking about that in relation to Hester, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, who's previously content in her loveless marriage to Foster because she was anticipating that love only brings pain or a greater path to suffering. Uh, And then this is kind of where she's thinking, like, love must be a terrible thing. 
Yeah, and I just wanted to point out also that I think there's also this reference to Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon, which gets its name from the poem in the Bible. There are a few different connections that I thought of with Morrison's Song of Solomon. So Song of Solomon is also set in Michigan, um, like this book. Um, And there's also sort of intergenerational family schemes and themes of escape and freedom connected to like earthly love. And like, what does it mean to leave someone behind when you're trying to sort of uh, attempt like freedom, especially uh, like who gets left behind and how often it is like black women is sort of a theme of the Morrison book. So I think Jenkins might be thinking about that. I feel like it's a it's a big it's a big reference. Obviously, the Bible is also a big reference, but I think um, the the connection, especially with a book about black characters, there's probably also this connection to the, the Morrison novel. Yeah, well, and leaving behind too, it's something that kind of like, we haven't really talked too much about like B yet, but like B, I kind of like see like the, she does the same thing that Janine does basically. Like she betrays the people in her community, or I guess there's not really Janine's close community, but like uh, she right. betrays people um, in order to like, uh, for, for Janine, it's kind of framed as more selfish like kind of like for her to uh, get away but like for B it's like to learn information about her children and Lemuel like who's B's son like fostered this like uh, part of the reason why he's like trying to capture people and kidnap people um, like part of the thing that's causing it is like this deep-seated rage at like being left behind by B that's like why he doesn't yeah. forgive her why he kind of tr- gets her in on like betraying the people in her community and and Hester, like when she finds out about B, like uh, she's she ends up like hugging her like at that end point, like and yeah. I I kind of wonder if we were maybe getting primed for that from like Hester's reactions to Jeanette, who's connected to Janine, like Hester kind of like being able to like look at people from multiple angles and like not like be like this was a good thing that you did, but like being like this is just really really sad like she could yeah just understand where they're coming from yeah because I think kind of um and I think that's more for like the reader's benefit than it is for like her character like for us to kind of like be thinking about like yeah this is a really horrible thing but like you gotta kind of like zoom out on everything and kind of like if you want to get like a clearer picture of what happened yeah for sure I would love to speak about the nicknames in this book. Galen calls Hester Indigo, and he says in the book, he spoke it as if she were someone he cherished. Galen also has a nickname, the dragon, which, surprisingly, is not because of how fierce he is, but because his family thought he was not a very attractive baby. (laughs) When we get to that part, I was just like, really? (laughs) Yeah, what is it about like unattractive babies becoming like very striking men in historical romance? They're like this baby. You're is only so thinking of you're going to be a you're literally you're gonna be a yeah, yeah, scoundrel if this happens. <laughs> but it's, it's the I, most I unattractive like baby. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it was also people who liked Galen because Galen has the parts of his family uh, who yeah, don't yeah. like him, but it's like his members of his family who do love him think he's an unattractive baby. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that was. I don't. Yeah, I don't really have much to like to think about for the dragon, except for the dragon is just incredibly funny. Um, <laughs> it is funny, but it does suit him. It's funny because he does grow into the nickname as he gets yeah. older. Like well, he is like, scary and fierce, and just like casually be like to Hester, like, "Do you want me to murder him for you?" Like since, like I, I think will. he's I totally. Will. Yeah, yeah he I can do that. Would. It's fine. Yeah. Like. <laughs> he would. 
Oh, yeah. And indigo. Oh, that just gets me so much. Like, just this, like, it's such a sweet, like, and then how early he starts calling her indigo. Early yes, and it happens, often. like, so, so fast. And she's, like, taken aback by it. But he's like, that that's just what we do. We give each other nicknames. And it's, like, so he gets, because he's talking about, like, the Underground Railroad work. And it's, like, he gets this, like, intimacy by saying, like, that's just my profession. Like, we just, we have code names. Like, you have to have one. And it's, like, okay, this incredibly sweet, like, romantic nickname is professionalism to him. Yeah. There's this quote I wanted to read where he's like, it's, I think it's at that point you're talking about, Emma, where I think it's like the first time he calls her Indigo, like in the same conversation. So um, Galen speaking after Hester kind of puts herself down. So he says, you devalue yourself for no reason, Indigo. Hester felt herself blossom again under the name. I prefer you call me Hester. And Galen's response, but you're not a Hester. You're an Indigo. Hester's are joyless, pruny old women who look down their noses at sinners like me. Take the word of an authority on women. Indigo is what you are. Indigo is who you will be. Sorry, I'm just like so... <laughs> he calls himself an authority on women. But that's very... I, I just love that part where, where it says like Hester felt herself blossom under the name. So even though she's like, just call me Hester. I don't know. Maybe like, like with Galen, she kind of grows into this name. She... This thing that, like, has marked her as a slave, he, like, turns around and he makes it good. Okay, so I also, as we kind of been talking about the nickname, I we also wanted to give a bit of a background on Hester's hands and how they get dyed. So they're permanently dyed from handling indigo when she was enslaved in South Carolina. So she worked there until she was nine years old before she got rescued. Um, so before a synthetic dye was formulated in 1856 by a British chemist, William Perkins, who produced movine, you needed plants from the genus Indigofera to make indigo. Nobody grew it successfully until a 16-year-old enslaver, Eliza Lucas, tried it on three plantations she managed for her father, and then the enslaved people on those plantations innovated how to grow and process indigo. Donna Hardy from the International Center for Indigo Culture said, Slavery wasn't even legal in Georgia until indigo became the main export in South Carolina. The British governors in Georgia decided to legalize slavery to keep the indigo industry going. Georgia lifted its ban on slavery in 1751 to fuel the production of indigo. So when the Revolutionary War starts and they're no longer getting, like England was getting indigo from the states, they then switched to forcing Indian sharecroppers, like in India, to grow it. I don't know. It's just, I thought it was interesting because it's just like a very, something that really affects Hester's life even after She's left, like, she always wears gloves in public, always. And I think at the there's at the end of the book when Chu is finally, does he kidnap or tries to kidnap her again? But he asks her to, oh, he's kidnapped her and he's like, remove your gloves. There are so many times in, like, historical romance where, like, uh, you, you look at your hands. Like, you look at your hands to see, like, what you've been doing. Like, where, are they, like, calloused? Are they marked? Are they anything? Um, so I think kind of, like, the hands being stained indigo is kind of like a that to like the the upteenth almost. Yeah, I don't know if I have like much more to add to that point except it's just really just kind of horrifying and sad just to think about like how like it wasn't until indigo came about that Georgia. Started. They're like, hey, we can profit yeah. off this, and we need yeah. a labor force. Yeah, it's pretty devastating. So I think it was like. Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. I think we're doing it. There might have been other states. We're not historians here, but yeah, those three states, yeah. we're doing it. 
And I think, so this is the thing I wasn't sure if I was going to talk about, but I think it makes sense too. Yeah. So Eliza Lucas, um, that name, like I grew up in the South, I grew up in Georgia and I was like definitely like a like STEM scholarship tween sort of thing. And so like just a little bit after Indigo came out, I remember the name Eliza Lucas, like once Beth shared this um, like historical context for me, I was like, oh, I I remember being taught about Eliza Lucas and she was definitely characterized as like a proto-feminist in those like sort of STEM camps that I went to. It was like, oh, this like teenage girl invented the scientific process. Isn't that cool? And it was like, I, then I had forgotten about her name. And I think that's the fact that it's like this added context of the fact that she like managed plantations, owned people, but while doing this like scientific progress that is like can be characterized as like a feminist act in some circles. I think that sort of background, even though that's not initially discussed as directly in the book, I think speaks to sort of some of the trends that we see in historical romance where white women characters are given like jobs and sciences or, or just jobs in general, even like suffragette characters, that the historical counterparts of them have like these intersecting identities where they're also oppressors or they have access to money or they have access to sort of privilege that allows them to be in those spaces. And this is like a very direct one where this this woman like was able to do these things and afford it independence while owning people. And it's like, this is, this is not like owning people is not feminist. That's yeah. um, it like objectively. And, but it's, it still has this, like, if you cut off part of the story, you have this sort of like girl boss feminism that you can like characterize as like sciencey and cool, but then you're ignoring a whole, a whole swath of this woman's like privilege and identity and like heinous acts that she participated in. Yeah. That's kind of like my biggest beef with, suffragette historicals or at least some of them it's just kind of like the because uh, everything i know about suffragists were pretty racist like yeah right it, it, so it's kind of like <laughs> so when you get into suffragette as being a shorthand for feminist like the political activism for white women is a shorthand for feminist then you're, you're just basically you're really meaning like white feminism but you're saying feminist like but i don't even know if you could even Oh, but taking someone who actually had owned like multiple plantations and applying that is, I can, I can see that happening because people are insane. Right. Yeah. And this, I think science, especially like science, uh-huh. like the history of science, oftentimes it's like there's, there's one story, but then there's often the other story that if, when you dig into it reveals how often like the bodies of black women are like subjugated by the science mm-hmm. um it's like in uh like experiments or um like in like i think of like henrietta Lacks. yeah like all these things that are like can be characterized as movements forward like who is being like oppressed by those movements forward and so like even heroines who are in like the sciences in historical romances i think if they're not addressing sort of like where that money is coming from or like what the science is being used for it can be uh sort of hollow or like they're turning a blind eye but yeah i think science suffragettes are sort of their their own individual like problematic (laughs) thing but i think science um just the the history of science and it's 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 often fraught um and not always um simple or easy to turn into a, a romantic story if you don't want to ignore things yeah i think you're right science is especially fraught where Black people especially have been experimented on. Also, like, in prisons, like, people, they don't even know what they're getting. Sorry, I'm, like, mm-hmm. trying to think of, like, a specific experiment, but it's not coming to me right now. Um, let's maybe move on. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're getting... It's going to be great. Uh, 
I think it's important to talk about. I know as we a general annoyance we all have. I feel like feminism is framed as like a woman does something, therefore a woman has an orgasm. <laughs> feminism. <laughs> woman has orgasm or job. Yes. <laughs> what the job is. Yeah. Uh, woman is landowner? Question mark. Oh. <laughs> so something I wanted to talk about in this book is the use of the abject in this book. So the abject is a concept from the theorist Julia Kristeva from the eighties. Um, she wrote about the powers of horror. A quote from her is, the refuse and corpses show me that I, per, what I permanently thrust aside in order to live. So the abject is that which disturbs social order or reason, so taboo things that are barely separate from ourselves and remind a person of their body without being of their body. Art that focuses on these materials often aims to create an uncanny feeling. This can be art that deals with materials or subjects of materials that are discarded but are closely associated with the human experience. So things from like newspapers, like the daily um, turning over a newspaper can deal with the abject or hair or bodily fluids. So I tend to notice immediately when romance novel characters go to the bathroom because it's something that's so rarely referenced. And this is an important part in sort of the development of the relationship between Galen and Hester, because Galen going to the bathroom, he he um, is injured and uh, Hester wants him to use the chamber pot in the room. And he's like, no, I want to go outside. I want to go to the outhouse. And this is important in sort of his like talking to Hester and them developing sort of learning each other's personalities. It's important to his char- character that he insists on going outside. Bodily functions also come up again when their house is vandalized um, because it's done with like excrement. So I think the theme of the abject goes beyond just sort of incidental inclusion. The surface level reaction to these mentions can sometimes be oh gross, but the abject um, art has this sort of long feminist history with based in that reaction. So linking the experience of being cast off as the antithesis of objectification and commodification of feminine bodies. But objection also has a complicated history with bodies of color. Often the unruliness of the body in abject art is a narrow venue for white women to act out or escape objectification without considering added layers of violence for people of color shirking notions of neatness or accepted presentation, especially for women. So I was thinking, do either of you have thoughts about how these how these abject mentions work in this book or in romance at large. Uh, the other author that I have noticed mentions things that sort of deal with um, the abject and bodily fluids in sort of cleaner environments are is Sherry Thomas. There are lots of mentions of bodily functions. I noticed people go to the bathroom in her books um, more often than other sort of Victorian or Regency books. So it just your reactions to, to like the inclusions in this book or abject at large in, in romance. I don't know. I don't know if this is the abject, but I do like that it is a plot point because it's something so simple, but he is hiding. Like, if the reason she doesn't want him to go outside, Hester doesn't want Galen to go outside, is because someone might see him and, like, he's at risk of being captured. So she's just like, just let me, like, I change the chamber pot all the time. Like, it's not a big deal. And I think it just establishes their dynamic right away that he's very stubborn. He's like, no, I'm going outside. I will do it by myself if I have, like, he walks outside even though he's still injured. And yeah, they're they're kind of arguing right from the get-go. And I like that it's over something as simple as he just needs to use the bathroom and he wants to go outside. Yeah, so I'm I'm thinking about like Shu, like the when we're first introduced to Shu, like he's like disgusting, like he smells really awful, and that's like a His thing. His teeth that kind are of, black, like, yeah, yeah, that's like a thing that comes up like over and over and over again, and that's kind of like the the racist white people like Shu are kind of like uh, will do whatever they can to degrade black people, and and so he's the one who 
vandalizes Hester's home with excrement. So it's kind of like this thing where it's like, if you kind of like contrast that to like, Galen's going to use the outhouse. Like Hester is like very clean, very like tidy, like has the vanilla. Like uh, even if her clothes are coming apart a little bit they're still they're still very well cared for uh yeah jenkins is showing like how they how they diverge like how there's like this this uh more that they both have to hester and galen cannot act the way that she can act like not that they would want to nobody would really want to i hope but like it, it i think i think that was the kind of a very interesting way for her to do that yeah, I think also the vanilla, I think that relates to this, like, so uh, Hester, like, scents herself with vanilla, like, uh, Galen says, like, you smell so good, what scent are you wearing? And she's like, I'm not wearing perfume. And he's like, you're not wearing anything. And she says, like, oh, I'm, I'm wearing vanilla. And he's like, from, like, cooking, like, it's like, she she's using the same thing that she would cook with to scent herself. But I think that does relate to the abject of, like, the, like, idea of, like, make, like, consuming, like, that mm-hmm. you're, you're connecting your body to things that are consumed, for Hester, like links her like to domesticity, but also like that she's she's connecting herself with these like items that are like treats and consumption. Um, that again is one of those things that has like an uncanny experience as like a person where like you you don't want to be consumed, but there is this like hominess and it it's like leads to this like romantic connection for them. So it's that sort of like weird feeling where you're you're smelling like you're literally smelling good enough to eat. And, and that like sort of Garmon scent has like that uh, like uncanny reaction for him. And then like Galen has these like over like oversized reactions to the vanilla scent throughout the book that are sort of over the top, but because he's so he's so like linked to Hester. Yeah, he like he buys the vanilla and then he puts it on her thigh before they go. Yeah. To the ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was really hot. Yeah. <laughs> like don't think about those meanies at the ball, Hester. it's like really what he said he was like don't be thinking about them think about this (laughs) i feel like it's this kind of well this one this um indigo was published in the 90s like charles mentioned and i feel like there was much more like naive heroines during this time and so hester even doesn't like like should i share like i'm having my period do i share this with galen like after they get married like should he know about this and then also like um like other heroines she's not too like after they have sex the first time galen's like what if you're pregnant and she's like what (laughs) like what are you talking about so i don't know i feel like there's maybe like a connection there of just like inexperience or just like what level of sharing of like her body and like even like bodily fluids does she share with this like other person it is it does feel novel to have a heroine who's a virgin and is like naive but also is like kind of unconcerned with that aspect yeah. it's like like the like we talked about with her reputation yeah she didn't um, care That's she fun. just kind of has like a, a like a nonplussed attitude about about sex and it's, it's she's kind of also like her because i guess we kind of talked about this a little bit with foster she's the marriage with foster she's intending to enter into is like um she she's planning on it being sexless like she it's like going to be a marriage like a, they're just a like companions marriage. yeah companions and it's like this is going to be uh, platonic and like she's like uninterested kind of in that like sexual relationship and janine says like some cool things to her about that um that she would like be willing to accept that um it's like galen sort of is this unique um thing for, for hester okay do we have anything else to say other than we love beverly jenkins 
Yeah, we're good. <laughs> we love you, Beverly Jenkins, who is 100% listening to this right now. Um, so thank you so much for listening to Reformed Rakes. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find monthly bonus episodes on our Patreon at patreon.com slash reformedrakes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates. The username for both is at reformedrakes. Thank you again, and we will see you next time.